This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and today I am joined by Dr. Kristen Bieta, who's an associate professor in the Department of Teacher Education at Michigan State University. Kristen, thanks so much for being here. Thanks. I'm so excited to be invited to do this. We're going to be talking about Kristen's recent article in the Journal of Teacher Education, Volume 66, and that's entitled, You Are Learning Well, My Dear, Shifts in Novice Teachers Talk About Teaching During Their Internship. And that title is pretty striking, and we'll see why. But but that quote of your learning well, my dear, was spoken from a mentor teacher to an intern yeah. about kind of this process of the intern learning through the mentorship. Yeah. Um, so we'll get into that article quite a bit later. First, I want to start, though, Kristen, by backing up to your grad school experience. So uh, where did you study, and who did you work with there? So I uh, went to grad school at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, my advisor was Eric Knuth. My dissertation focused on the enactment of proof-related tasks that were from actually classrooms that were using the connected mathematics curriculum, Mm -hmm. and I looked at various um, aspects of the teacher and students' work around those proof-related tasks in six different middle school classrooms. Mm -hmm. And I will just say to the listeners, if you're interested in that study, it was published, a a portion of it was published in JRME, um, so I'll put a a citation for that in the comments. But moving to the Journal of Teacher Education study, mm-hmm. so I mentioned you know the mentors and the intern teachers, and that's what mm-hmm. this is really focused on in a kind of interesting case-based way. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious where this study originated and how it grew out of the larger project. So actually, this study originated when I was in grad school. Wow. Um, it was an interesting story. When the summer before I started my dissertation, I was looking through the um, SIGRME, their website, and they had some opportunities for early career researchers, and this opportunity came up to go to a summer workshop for researchers that was being hosted by the THEMAT Research Group, which stands for Thought Experiments and Mathematics Teaching. And so the PIs are Daniel Chazen, who was one of the co-authors on this um, manuscript, and Pat Herbst. And so I was way past the deadline for applying to be a part of this workshop. And so I just literally took, I mean, it was like maybe two months past the deadline, but I just took a shot. I just said, this looks really interesting. Any chance you might have room for another person. Mm -hmm. And I got a reply back within a few days that, yeah, you know, we would have space. But as it turns out, I think one of the PIs ended up asking my advisor, like, who is this person? And is she, you know, legitimate? Because it was so far past the due date. <laughs> and so I went to this experience, and I remember I met the other co-author of this article there, Hayit Salah, who was going to be a postdoc with Dan Chazen um, the next year. And, you know, I ended up meeting, like, future colleagues that I've had at Michigan State there. Wow. And it was really, uh, I will say, life and career changing experience that summer. And we got to look at all this interesting data that they were gathering from their work with focus groups of teachers, which included mentor teachers as well as pre-service teachers that, that they were working with. So that's kind of where this started. And I got particularly interested in one of their focus groups around an animation that involved proof. And so Hagid and I spent some time looking at the the transcripts from these study sessions and looking, we were finding some really interesting thoughts that were coming out about the teaching 
from this one episode of this animation about proof. Um, after that summer, we then met at University of Maryland for, I think, two more summers after that to mm-hmm. dig into this data. Uh-huh. And then that's where the idea that eventually got published in this article came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned that there were these discussions happening. So could you tell us about the participants that were directly involved in this study? Yeah. So I should say the point of the original theme at study was to better understand the practical rationality of algebra teaching and geometry teaching. So they convened study groups. Uh, And if you want to know more about practical rationality and that theory, more of it can be found. There's a little bit in this article, but then we'll also post some citations. Mm -hmm. So they were were interested in understanding practical rationality of algebra and geometry teaching. They convened these study groups of algebra and geometry teachers. And so at the same time, many of these teachers that were in their study groups that would watch animations and then talk about what they noticed about the teaching in the animations, they also happened to be mentor teachers of student teachers. And so they decided to then add in some study groups with those intern teachers wow. to understand how they were coming to mm-hmm. know the practical rationality of the discipline that they were learning about. And then you focused on, it was an algebra one for this particular study, the algebra side of things. And then how many were actually involved in this analysis? There were roughly 12 mentors and interns total Mm -hmm. that we focused on um, in this study. You mentioned the practical rationality from the larger project, and so you did use that as a frame for Mm -hmm. this study. So you focused in on these particular discussions of an animated teaching episode, which we'll talk about in a second. Mm -hmm. But you had these discussions where you had the the interns discussing the episode, then you had the mentors discussing the episodes in the fall, and in the spring you had them all together discussing the episode again to kind of see where it was later in the year. And for the interns, that was an important year. Yes. Because they've been learning a lot that year through their field experience. Yeah, and this particular field experience for them, they were in their mentors' classrooms in the fall, but they were more an observational kind of role. And then in the spring, they had started taking on teaching quite a bit of their mentor's instructional load. And so within that four months, they had really shifted the role that they had in their mentor's classroom. Yeah. So looking at those discussions that they were having about this animated episode, Mm -hmm. what were the lenses that you brought to kind of make sense of that data? Mm -hmm. When we initially started looking at the data, and I said we were finding these interesting things, what was really tricky is we were trying on different lenses And what we were finding is it wasn't really capturing the differences that we felt were there. Um, Mm -hmm. We kept kind of going down particular tracks uh, and and feeling like at the end of the path, we couldn't really say that they were very different. Like if you just look at the data that we have from a perspective of looking at claims, you know, the claims that were made, the claims actually look very similar. But we knew that they were coming from different places. And so we were trying to figure out how can we articulate and bring out so that our data will bear out that they really were different. I mean, we were thinking about tone. We looked at systemic functional linguistics for a while. um, And what we ultimately settled on was um, one framework around the the Toolman scheme and Mm -hmm. modifications that have been made to the Toolman scheme, which helped us dig at the justifications. So the justifications that they were using for the claims, that's when we started to really get the differences and to analyze the justifications. 
we applied a theory that comes from practical rationality, but it's related to the various obligations that are incumbent upon the role of teacher in school settings. So that's mm-hmm. what we, we chose to use. There were four of them that played a pretty important role mm-hmm. in the results. So mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could just take us through those four yeah. obligations that were cited or that are part of a teacher's practical rationality. Okay. The first one I think that's that's fairly straightforward is the obligation to the discipline. Mm-hmm. So for a mathematics teacher, it's making sure that students are learning valid mathematics in ways that would be recognized as upholding disciplinary standards. Mm-hmm. A second one is a teacher's obligation to the institution. So one institution that the teachers might be obligated to is their school context. So if the school requires them to do particular things, submit lesson plans, or teach from a prescribed curriculum. Another one is their obligation to the interpersonal kind of workings within the classroom. So students making making sure that students aren't... Um, you know, disrupting one another, that they're able to work together. And the final obligation um, that we reference in this article is about obligation to the individual students, so making Mm -hmm. sure that their individual needs are met intellectually, socially, you know, um, emotionally, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so, as you can tell, that gets pretty complex handling all four of those, and so it's interesting (laughs) to see how they're going to play out. Mm -hmm. My guest is Kristen Bieta from Michigan State University, and we're talking about her article in the Journal of Teacher Education, You are learning well, my dear. Um, So let's get into that case now. So we've referred to this scenario. Can you just briefly let us know what was the episode of teaching that they were talking about? Okay. So the animation depicts a situation where students were working on a fairly straightforward task where they had to solve an equation for X. The X was on both sides Mm -hmm. of the equation. And a student comes to the board to share their solution strategy and does something that I think a lot of teachers would consider to be a non-standard step by instead of combining like terms first, the student divides through by a common factor first. Mm -hmm. This animation, that's sort of the base of the animation. Mm -hmm. And if you go to um, LessonSketch.org, you can actually, this animation is called The Great Divide, and you can see other versions of that particular animation. The version that was watched, though, both in the fall and the spring sessions, is a case of where the teacher handles the moment by, instead of discussing that, non-standard strategy of dividing through by a common factor just says to the class, and I should back up and say, a student raises a question about the non-standard method. The student's question says something like, I don't, can we do that? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I've never seen that before. Something like that is confused by this, this solution method. And so the teacher's response to that particular question is to say, oh, as it turns out, it's just a coincidence that you can do it that way at all. Let me give you a different problem. Mm-hmm. It's numbers that don't have exactly. a common factor. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't have a common factor, so they can't just apply that strategy. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the episode mm-hmm. that they they watched. So let's start um, with the mentor teachers, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. So we have mentor teachers. These are experienced teachers of different types, um, about a half dozen of them. And what was their discussion like when they were talking about that episode? Yeah. So the thing that came out in their discussion was that moment where the teacher says, oh, it's really just a coincidence, you can do that all. They articulated it as that was a missing a teachable moment. Mm-hmm. They actually use the phrase teachable moment. They provide some justification that there's a lot of different ways that you could have gone there um, that would have been really educative for the, the students. 
Uh, what was interesting, though, in their sort of justifications for why, you know, that was a, a missed moment, they started talking about how, you know, it's difficult because you have to negotiate the fact that other students in the class may not be able to follow the, the solution method. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't want other students to get confused um, so while they recognized it was a teachable moment, they felt okay with what the teacher had. Maybe the teacher could have handled it a little bit differently, but generally they were okay with the fact that that solution method didn't get explored further because they felt like it was a moment where students were getting confused anyway. Mm-hmm. So we acknowledged that kind of justification as attending to the interpersonal obligation that a teacher has to to manage. Like it, it might be more helpful for the whole class, so this is like the interpersonal thing, mm-hmm. to keep more of the attention on the standard method, mm-hmm. right? Because it could be confusing or it could you know, throw people off to have this non-standard one come up. Right, exactly. Yeah. So what about uh, also in the fall, so these earlier discussions, how did the interns talk about that episode? So the interns were also bothered but they were particularly bothered about its effect on the student who had brought forth the non-standard solution method in the mm-hmm. first place. Mm-hmm. They said, you know, how's that student going to feel if the teacher's like, oh, well, that's just a coincidence, you can do it all, that kind of invalidates potentially that solution method as being a method that might be able to be used for other problems. So they were concerned about its effect on that particular student, which seems to be then more of a focus on, you know, how the teacher manages an obligation to that individual student. Mm -hmm. And then they also brought up some disciplinary obligations, I believe, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so they, I think what bothered them too, it was how the student would feel, but also that was a valid solution strategy. Mm -hmm. And so would the student then take away that it wasn't? They were worried about how that's, what the student's takeaway was. Mathematically. um, Mathematically, exactly. Mathematically, it was valid. You can divide both sides by five or whatever the number is. So kind of that mix of the discipline it maybe the teacher didn't serve the discipline or the teacher didn't serve the individual student in that moment Mm -hmm. so let's fast forward now in the spring they talk about this same episode of teaching and i should say um just to be fair we're talking about the the one response that the teacher made about saying oh it's a coincidence here's a different problem where it won't work there were other Alternatives where the teacher handled it differently, and that's also addressed in the article. Yes, yeah, and so if you want to, there's there's other excerpts that you can read about their reactions to mm-hmm. different alternatives. Okay, so um, but following through the one that we've been yeah. discussing here, so like now when the interns and the mentors were together later on towards the end of the school mm-hmm. year, mm-hmm. how did they talk about this episode? Yeah, so, and I should say in that combined session in the spring where mentors and interns were together, they were grouped um, into smaller groups for the activity, and they were asked to kind of pick frames within the animation, moments in the animation that, you know, they wanted to talk about that were interesting or somehow problematic to them, and what was coming up in some of the groups was, again, this mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. And they, these were generally mixed groups of mentors and interns. And so what we found, though, when the, the groups were sharing what bothered them about this particular moment, the interns were often the ones that were sharing what the problem was. And instead of articulating their concerns about the student who had given that non, non-standard solution method and how they would feel, you know, about the being just kind of pushed aside and what they might think about the mathematics then, they started articulating, 
oh, this is a concern because you're going to have, this is a moment where students may be somewhat confused and you need to deal with that confusion. And it's not really an acceptable way to deal with it by just saying, oh, this is a coincidence. And then they actually started saying, but maybe the teacher should have just really thought more about this problem. And maybe they shouldn't, if this was not a solution strategy that had been discussed yet so that all students would have had access to it, mm-hmm. then it really wasn't an appropriate task. Mm-hmm. The teacher should have asked a task that didn't have that common factor. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could kind of avoid actually having any student come forth with this alternative solution mm-hmm. strategy, which, I mean, among our, our um, writing team, we really found that to be an interesting kind of shift, like a purposeful choice to avoid having more solutions on the table to deal with. Mm-hmm. So, Especially when in the fall, the interns were really kind of all about multiple mm-hmm. solutions. Mm-hmm. I remember some of the quotes are, they seem pretty jazzed up about multiple right. solutions, but then towards the end some of those same people were kind of saying it might be good to really lead with the standard solution, yeah. get that for everybody, and then open it up to alternative solutions. Right. Because they're in their justifications are articulating that having to manage the interpersonal aspect of the class where they've got now to deal with many different kind of thoughts, it's much easier to manage when you're all sort of on the same page and you're all working from the sort of the same mm-hmm. playbook. Like, oh, when we see an equation like this, we combine like terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you start introducing something that no one else has seen, okay, that makes something that's more difficult to manage and getting everybody up to speed with what the solution is, does it make sense? Is it valid? Does it always work? Those sorts of questions then um, can make the instructional situation more complicated. Mm-hmm. So to me, as I was reading this, it was really striking to me about a lot of people getting on board with each other to have the standard method first and really get that established before having these multiples. Because I don't necessarily agree with that mm-hmm. approach. Mm-hmm. Um when they were kind of getting on board and the interns were getting on board with the standard one approach will be less confusion mm-hmm. before we open it up to multiples, that's where this title quote came in. Yes. It came in from this mentor that said to the intern, you are learning well, my dear. Yes. I just I want to get your reaction because yeah. you've thought about this quote a lot, obviously. Yeah. How do, what do you make of that moment? So this quote was really important because... I was telling you about the first time I encountered this data. It was the the summer workshop. And I think it was Dan who said, he was describing this moment Mm -hmm. from the focus group. And I I think that maybe he had been involved or present for that focus group. And he, that really stuck with him. Yeah. And so we wanted to kind of unpack, okay, where is that coming from? And it kind of got us started down this road of, are there other moments of this sort of explicit or also implicit mentoring that was happening um, in these sessions where the mentors and interns were combined. So yeah, that's it, it was a very, very important quote that really stood out, I think, um, among the corpus of their data that they had. Mm-hmm. So what do you see as some of the main implications of this work? I hope that the article comes away, like a one big takeaway that's clear from the article is that it's not only important to attend to the you know, stated kind of beliefs and claims that prospective teachers have about teaching, but it's also important to listen to the justifications they have for those claims to better understand how they're coming to know this practical rationality of teaching. Um, because there's a body of literature out there that's talking about how beliefs don't necessarily link to uh, practice. 
And I think the teacher's sort of internal decision-making about why they're choosing to do certain actions has a lot to do with how they manage the obligations upon their role of a teacher. And so in teacher preparation programs, the more that we can attend to how our prospective teachers are talking about why they would do something in the classroom, it can give us a sense of how they're acquiring kind of the tools um, to help them manage these these obligations that, that they will face when they step into the role of teacher. Yeah, I think even identifying the obligations is a pretty big step, like mm-hmm. to make them explicit yeah. and have pre-service teachers name them, think about them, talk about them, and then maybe helping the pre-service teachers to think about balancing the tensions, right? Like, just to help them realize sometimes the individual might be in tension with the interpersonal, or sometimes the disciplinary might be in tension with the institutional. Yeah, one of the tensions that came out in the data that you can read about in the paper was the mentors were articulating about um, how they felt like a teachable moment has been missed, and they pointed to, is it because of the curriculum frameworks that are kind of thrust upon us from the district level? Mm -hmm. Like, is that taking away our ability to capitalize on these teachable moments? So Mm -hmm. they were very explicitly articulating those tensions that they were facing that they had to manage. They recognized the importance of this kind of solution method, but they also then had to weigh that against the potential of, say, not meeting their institutional obligation. Hmm. In looking closely at the mentors and the interns, do you have any future work that's coming out of these ideas? Yeah, I think my work on this study definitely sparked my interest into how intern teachers and early career teachers learn from mentor teachers. And right now, I'm very lucky to have some funding from the National Science Foundation and from W.T. Grant. It's funding some work with colleagues of mine, Ken Frank at MSU, Peter Youngs at University of Virginia, and Serena Saloum at Ball State. And we're looking at how a early career teacher's school-based social networks, their mentors and school-based colleagues, is influencing their ability to teach in ambitious ways. So uh, it's a larger scale study, but I'm still kind of taking some of the things that I learned here about mentor and intern learning together and looking at it um, in this new setting. Mm -hmm. And another big idea that comes through in the article, but we didn't really talk about here, but it also seems like it feeds into the early career study that you were just describing, Mm -hmm. is the whole tensions between preparation programs and then field and kind of getting into the real world. Because there's always this feeling, at least I have this feeling, and I know colleagues of mine that have this feeling like, we have high hopes and we try to make a difference for these pre-service teachers when we work with them in college courses. Right. But there's only so much you can do in college courses and there's so much that happens in the moment and being in a classroom. And so there's kind of this collective feeling of how much of a difference are we making in the preparation programs or are we totally washed out by what happens when they eventually get to the internship? That bigger issue, which I think is just a teacher education issue in general, yeah, yeah. Um, also threads through this work that you're doing. And to me, it also is a way for me to kind of connect to your work to try to think more about what's the role of the university program and then what's the role of the mentor and the school-based experience. Yeah, because it really is a part of the package of teacher education, and we can't lose sight of that. Mm-hmm. I think right now there's a lot of focus on what happens within like the walls of a university-based mm-hmm. um, teacher Because we have more control over those. So right, can... but actually we need to be thinking more systemically in our look at preparing teachers in the yeah. U.S., and I, I do want to say that I do think the university part makes a difference, but yeah. it's sometimes you have to be very careful in how you trace that difference and find it. Yeah, yeah. 
But, all right, so Kristen, I always have one final question that I ask. Um, so thanks so much for talking about your work. But now imagine if you weren't in math education and yeah. you could do anything else. What do you see yourself doing instead of math ed? I think my answer comes to no surprise to anybody who knows me, but I would definitely have like my own grocery store that would sell like artisanal foods. I'd probably make my own brownies and sell them there. Um, definitely something food related. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite place to frequent and where, where do you get a, a place where you find the food that inspires you? Actually, my latest favorite place to frequent, um, I'll give, give a shout out to the Allen Street uh, Farmer's Market in Lansing. Oh. It's every Wednesday and there's a really great mix of vendors. It's a great guy, um, Stone Circle Breads, that makes awesome oh. breads and pastries and I participate in a CSA program, the um, Giving Tree Farm, which actually supports, it's a community-based initiative, support people who've had brain injuries. They actually work on the farm, and they learn skills through working on the farm. So really great program, and there's always some delicious like enchiladas and meat um, products there. It's just, it's a great smorgasbord of good food. Wow, yeah, yeah. great stuff. And uh, I don't know if the farmer's market will be going in November, but people can come visit Michigan State yes. and Lansing, East Lansing in November for PMENA. Yeah, Kellogg Center, and we hope to see, see you there. Yeah, great. Thanks so much for, for stopping in and doing this with me. Thanks, Sam. This is fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.